This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Hello, and welcome to RAND. I'm Jeffrey Wasserman, Vice President and Director of RAND Health, which is a division of the RAND Corporation. And it's my pleasure to introduce you to our speaker this evening. Dr. Carla Renz is a professor at our Pardee Rand Graduate School and an associate professor of medicine at UCLA. He is also a palliative care consultant and general internist at the Veterans Affairs Greater Los Angeles Healthcare System and is director of the Veterans Affairs Palliative Care Quality Improvement Resource Center. Here at Rand, his work with the Southern California Evidence-Based Practice Center focuses on cancer care and end-of-life care and outcomes. He is also involved in developing quality measures for palliative and end-of-life care, and he is working with the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, also known as MedPAC, on hospice reimbursement issues. He is author of many journal articles, including Evidence for Improving Palliative Care at the End of Life, a Systematic Review, and Progress in Quality of Care Research and Hope for Supportive Cancer Care. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Carl Lorenz. Thanks, Jeffrey. Thank you very much for the introduction. Um, and thank you very much for attending. I'm planning to um, talk for about 20 to 25 minutes, but I'm very much looking forward to the questions that you all have about this topic and, um, and helping to explore um, some of the areas that are on your mind in approaching it. But in starting, I must say, um, I spent much of the day reading a very important um, journal here at RAND that I uh, particularly value for its uh, insights into policy, and that's the onion and a commentator in The Onion today noted, um, with regard to the fiscal cliff, that they're hoping our leaders will come together and make the difficult choices to put, push this thing back by at least a couple of weeks. <laughs> and as I was pondering that and its relevance to our subject tonight, I thought um, that really it was quite ironic. Um, of course, why else read The Onion? But um, it was really ironic, and the reason it's ironic, and especially salient to what, what we have to talk about tonight, is first, um, a couple of weeks really isn't the issue. In fact, 10 years isn't even the issue in terms of American health. And finally, the kinds of subjects that are being addressed, or threatened rather, through the fiscal cliff and our decisions, um, potentially, um, our, our elected officials' decisions to suddenly change spending levels um, for a range of important, um, uh, important uh, needs across our society is that it's simply deferring a much larger tidal wave, and that's the tidal wave of healthcare costs. And so when we think about the salience of palliative and end-of-life care, there are many reasons to care about it. 
And some of them are completely unrelated to this. But it's very important to remember that um, the reason it's garnering so much attention in our society is twofold or multifold. One of the reasons for sure is that we face a rising tide of aging and a rising tide of healthcare costs. And in fact, um, in, in fact, the attention that it's garnering is to a large ex- uh, reason uh, due to that. And, w- and by 2050, in fact, if we don't address um, the cost curve in Medicare, every federal tax dollar received will go to health care delivery. Um, that's a problem, um, and, uh, and one that, um, that this issue brings into focus. So before I start, just a few words about me. Why do I care about this? I am a physician and a RAND researcher and have been um, conducting research in this area for nearly 15 years. I, I was trained as a general internist and discovered to my chagrin that this was something I really didn't learn anything about. But I didn't even know that I needed to understand it until I found myself in the middle of practice um, being take, taking care of tossed-off patients who were tossed off by specialists that no longer thought they were worthy of their attention because they couldn't be cured. So I remember struggling with the pain management of an elderly gentleman with lung cancer and having never been taught how to manage his pain using pain medication. I remember another case of a family um, with a very thoughtful and caring uh, couple um, uh, who approached me expressing their greatest fears related to the husband's cancer diagnosis, that he would die away from his home. And then um, not knowing exactly how to cope cope with even a conversation about the misgivings he had about some issues in chemotherapy, finding myself watching him and his wife struggling as he spent two or three weeks dying in our intensive care unit. Those haunted me until in 1998, Bob Brook, a former director of Rand Health, invited Joanne Lynn, um, a really well-known Washington advocate in these areas, to Los Angeles to give a talk about some work she'd been doing in this area. She related, in fact, that it was a systemic problem, and I realized that the challenges that I had were not exceptional, but sadly routine. And I faced a question about what I was going to do in the next uh, few decades of my life, investing my time and energies as a researcher. And I decided that I didn't want to be the 1,576th researcher examining the problems of hypertension, but that I, <laughs> I wanted to try to forge new ground in a problem that seemed to be neglected, and that I knew was neglected because I was miserable at taking care of it and because I could see that my peers were as well. So um, partially, too, because I'm an English major um, and I have certain proclivities, I realize that palliative care is a place that combines both emotional engagement, our spiritual um, and existential longings, and intellect. And I thought it would be a marvelous place to, uh, to combine all of those in trying to solve what I viewed as one of our most pressing problems. And in fact, this problem of cost is one that I saw uh, coming to, and, um, and I think it's given us about 10 or 15 years to build a world of knowledge 
that now has the potential to really change practice and to change the experience that each one of us are likely subject to if we don't do anything about it. So I'm very appreciative of this chance to tell you a little bit about it, and then I'm sure you'll have many questions about exactly what we're doing. But I thought this might be a good place to start. <laughs> um, and maybe just start with a question, so raise your hand. Who wants to die of heart failure? Okay, all right, I've got a couple hands. Anybody picking cancer? No? Okay. Uh, stroke? Stroke? Stroke. Oh, okay. All right. So a few strokes. Chronic lung disease? Okay. Pneumonia? No, I got a, I've got a couple pneumonias. The rest of you, I'm, I'm sorry to say, have chosen dementia. <laughs> <laughs> but, but here's the rub, right? Here's the rub. You don't get to avoid a choice. Well, it's not really a choice, but you certainly don't get to avoid an out. And all of us struggle with this issue, both as patients and as caregivers. And it's one of the most poignant struggles of our lives. And uh, this uh, cartoon, of course, uh, reminds us that we can't avoid it, um, just like the seasons. It, it is a season of life. But what's really uh, What's wonderful news these days is that Ted Williams' example of freezing himself is not the only option. <laughs> we do now have palliative care, and so um, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about a more hopeful future. But what is it that we want to achieve when we think about this frail time in life and the inevitability of where it might take us? This photo is one that says more than I could possibly through words. Thoughts? It's joyful, isn't it? It's full of joy. But tinged behind the joy is a sense of frailty and the vulnerability of two people who have to get around in a little red wagon and an electric wheelchair. And this equipoise, if I could call it that, this fulcrum, this place between frailty and dying and the joy and pleasure of living, that's the place of palliative care. It's a place of balance, it's a place of finding, um, finding balance. Um, it's the most hopeful prospect, actually, for, um, for something that otherwise is inevitable and, and otherwise often filled with uh, difficulty. Um, and the reason for it, sadly, is uh, well illustrated by this, which was a drawing given to me as a physician um, when I started working in this area a number of years ago, you can see um, this was a patient who I took care of, who was an African-American gentleman, um, formerly a Black Panther, not particularly old, in his uh, early 60s, but who, because of lifestyle choices, was subject to the risk for head and neck cancer. And after experiencing pain and going to a surgeon, who um, a great surgeon, um, going to take care of him as a head and neck specialist, was told about the excruciating pain, which was the main problem bothering him at the time. That's, um, that's great. Why don't you ask your primary care doctor about that sometime in the next couple weeks? So he lived with the pain, suffering intensely, and obviously, as you can see from this, which he drew after our visit, was mad as hell. And interestingly enough, didn't go through surgery. 
um, as a result of that experience. Um, something that raises the specter in palliative care of how better support helps us actually sometimes obtain some of the care that's actually beneficial and how not getting it pushes us away. Um, this gentleman, I must say, did die well, but you can see that even a good, uh, a good ending doesn't mean the journey isn't difficult. This is my car. <laughs> well, you're laughing, but it, it really almost is. Um, but it, it, you know, my car has taught me a lot. Um, and uh, one of the things it's taught me, but not early enough, is the law of diminishing returns. And one of the issues we have in healthcare, beyond that of, um, beyond the fact that there's an intrinsic journey that we go through, of which healthcare is a part, and that healthcare sometimes fails us in quality, as my story about um, the gentleman I cared for with head and neck cancer illustrates, is this third point. And that is that healthcare sometimes doesn't recognize something called the law of diminishing returns. And this gets back to how we started this conversation, because this is also a problem with our healthcare system a failure to incentivize appropriate balance, appropriate caution about many of the things that are a very good idea when we're young and healthy, like getting heart surgery to repair a heart valve or going through the first um, coronary artery bypass graft when we need it, but become increasingly problematic when we now have suffered a stroke, perhaps, as a result of something like that. Maybe we're living with a bit of dementia, and then that second cabbage pushes us over into a world um, apart where we don't even recognize our loved ones. And so um, a, one, part of the problem in the United States is that we don't know when to stop. We can see it in our epidemic of obesity. We see it in problems of, of global warming and uh, um, our proclivity for the car, but it, it affects our, the way we act as consumers and providers of health care as well. And so, um, in fact, some of the research um, that enlightens this point by Elliot Fisher and, uh, and Wenberg out, out of Dartmouth show that at the highest levels of health care spending, many areas of our country have worse, not better outcomes. It's no surprise, therefore, that when the Obama administration was going to raise this issue as part of the Accountable Care Act at the beginning, one of the first stories that we heard, the human story about President Obama in that context, was about caring for his grandmother when she was dying and making better choices. And I think um, because 30% of healthcare spending, 30% of Medicare lifetime spending is in the last year, um, this is something that we also have to think about. So what do we do? Um, my next two slides are a little bit about what we do. And this first slide um, is a reminder of one type of response and the one that's received some of the most attention. Um, all of these films, um, I probably like The Right to Die the best. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I think that one you actually have to rent in an alley. But... Um, <laughs> but uh, but these films, <laughs> which are about, about our right to die, are akin to trying to figure out how to solve crime in the Old West. It was taking justice into our own hands when we didn't have a good legal system. And I think the right to die is a kind of outraged response and need for control 
that um, seemed like the right thing to do when there wasn't a better answer. It still gets a lot of attention and still seems to be Hollywood's favorite way of dealing with these problems. Um, it's an important question, but I, I do want to focus on another type of response, and that's this, palliative care. It's what I started with. I'm going to read the definition from the World Health Organization and then think a little bit about what's unique about it. It's an approach that improves the quality of life of patients and families facing the problems associated with life-threatening illness through the prevention and relief of suffering by means of early identification and impeccable assessment and treatment of pain and other problems, physical, psychosocial, and spiritual. So just ending it all isn't necessarily the best um, option if living better might be an alternative. And palliative care is the alternative that tries to help us live better. There are some important things to recognize about the definition. I'm proud of the fact that I practice in an area of medicine where the patient and the family are part of the goal of care. I, I, really, um, I, I really think families are so critical to our health, and, and palliative care makes it explicit. Palliative care focuses on quality of life. So um, just like that photograph illustrated, that equipoise that the older couple had, palliative care tries to find it. And it does that because palliative care doctors and nurses and social workers and chaplains are all part of trying to identify and manage pain and physical, psychosocial, and spiritual problems. Um, Palliative care recognizes that the whole person is at issue when we're struggling with death and dying, not just our cells. And that is a revelation, unfortunately, um, sometimes in medicine. So it focuses on the concept of suffering and focusing, focuses on preventing it. So there are three questions that, um, that I might suggest you ask and that I think that our past work at RAND has at least prepared um, the healthcare system to provide an answer, whether it will or not. Um, here, I'm proud to have been involved in much work that's developed standards for accountability. There's no reason that we should suffer through going to the hospital and expect such terrible management of our pain. Um, sadly, you will discover that many places don't hold themselves accountable, nor does Medicare in many ways hold itself accountable for providing better pain management. But we do know how to do it, and we should ask for it. We should seek care from providers who are incentivized to care, to provide the right kind of care, not just health care. And, and so um, incentives, hopefully, are changing in ways that will appropriately incentivize clinicians um, to do what's necessary not only to extend life, but also to support us when our lives are more frail. And better care is, is about access to the right care in the right place at the right time. Y you know, there's a part in our lives when frailty is, is growing, and that actually might be well illustrated by the new and wonderful movie Amour, um, where, where frailty is coming on um, slowly, gradually, um, insidiously, and sometimes our community is the best place to receive the kinds of supports we need, not the healthcare system. Um, but seeking health care does become an inevitable part of our journey for most of us. And palliative care then is something we should seek out and expect. And the end of life when it's predictable um, or when it um, 
when it uh, seems very close, um, then there's hospice. So all of these are ways that we um, can expect to have better care at the right place and right time when we need it through support in our community, through having access to palliative care and access to hospice, which is um, an existing service. I'd like to just close by telling you that we're taking evidence like this at RAND and using it to try to forge a better future for the healthcare system. Um, one of the projects that we have in this area right now is called the RAND Trajectories and Palliation Study. And actually, we have a panel meeting next week in Washington where we're going to take evidence like this about palliative care and try to ask them the question of how could we imagine a better health care system and what policies would we foster and prioritize to ensure that these kinds of results are more widely generalized in what we actually experience. So that's, that's one of the things that we're actively working on and then planning to take those recommendations and use them to model them um, in terms of future health care impacts. Another project which we have, which uh, I think is very hopeful and also builds on what's happening in health re reform, is an effort to, um, to try to develop uh, a consumer survey to ask about experience at end of life in hospice. And I think um, one of the other important areas that Medicare um, hopefully will move even further on in the future is asking us about the care we receive asking families about the care that their loved ones received, and making sure that our healthcare systems are accountable for it. The work we're doing at RAND is a hopeful beginning, but it does need to go further. And I work also in the Department of Veterans Affairs, where we already use such a study nationally to hold all of our hospitals accountable for the care they deliver to veterans at the end of life. There's no reason Medicare shouldn't also do it. So those are two areas that we're working on. We have an avid program of investigation, and I'm extremely grateful to have had the chance to share just a little bit of it with you and to give you a sense of what this area um, is and what it might mean for each of us. So I'd like to take the time to entertain questions um, and uh, uh, look forward to anything that's on your mind. Yes. Thank you. I have two questions. First, how do you find palliative care in your community? Mm -hmm. And the second is, does palliative care uh, function or work with special needs children or people? Um, so I don't know uh, if we have any pediatric palliative care folks here, do we? Oh, fantastic. Ah, yes, Giovanni. So um, maybe uh, I think I should let um, my colleague uh, answer this question because he uh, actually is a pediatric palliative care specialist. I do with the second question. You want to yes. go with yes, the first? Please, I go with the second. Well, uh, <laughs> reality is actually, uh, I had a question for, uh, for Carl, my, my, myself, because uh, all of what he showed is very nice, but uh, in reality, where is the money? I mean, how do we do it? We can't do it. And when it comes to children, uh, is very is, is very difficult and almost impossible to in, implement whatever it was shown in, in the slides, and uh, uh, we are doing a good job within the hospital within our own environment. But as soon as we go outside, is uh, is very is very difficult to find people who are trained to deal with children, 
again, children are not little adults, so their requirements and their families and so forth and so on is much more complicated. And uh, and so that's the big dilemma that we face uh, is is very difficult. But I, and re- with respect to your first question, um, I don't know that there – I'm not sure, actually. Um, th- one of the uh, resources that's – Worthy of checking, though, would be CAPSI, the Center to Advance Palliative Care. And um, CAPSI did at one time, I believe, have a directory of palliative care programs. Um, I'm not sure if they still maintain that, um, but they they certainly did. They do. So it's um, – but we can look further if uh, – um, to try to answer your question. Next question in the back. <laughs> Hello. Um, I just wanted to make one comment to those people that are not working in the industry. Palliative care, it's important to know that that is a service that patients can still get full treatment on, whereas hospice, usually curative treatments have stopped. That's right. So um, patients can still get chemotherapy and radiation therapy and get whatever whatever treatments they've been getting. Mm. And I think that's an important thing to differentiate for some people that are not familiar with that. It is, it is a very important point. We, we have a question in the center. Hi. Um, I'm just curious about more about the funding, mm-hmm. even <clears throat> funding for the research yes. uh, for this type of health, right. future health care. Yes. Um, and in the real world, where do you go? It's a really important question. Uh-huh. I mean, I, I think it's troubling the extent to which it's been ignored. And um, I'll give you one example. Because of the controversy about these issues, and I, af- I must say, I think that they were shamelessly exploited in the Accountable Care Act deliberations. But you remember the death panel kinds of issues that were flying, and every provision related to better end-of-life care in the Accountable Care Act was scrubbed. Every provision. <coughs> so... Um, it, it was really interesting in that before that became an area of social controversy, it was a clearly bipartisan initiative. In, in other words, um, there were strongly bipartisan initiatives built into original legislation to reform this area that came from some of the most conservative and liberal members of Congress jointly, one of the few areas that Congress was able to find an area of collaboration in. And it's been deeply troubling to see the field set back by what I view as shameless exploitation um, to try to undermine the overall thrust of the Accountable Care Act. So we have a long way to go, and you can imagine in an environment like that that the history has not been good in terms of research funding. In fact, um, some of the most important work in this field has been done by philanthropy in the last 10 or 15 years. And um, even now, um, the National Institutes of Health don't have any particular bucket in in which to put this easily. Um, The National Institute of Nursing Research leads it, but it's a very small institute relative to the the sort of gargantuan size of of, uh, NIH in general. So um, it's an area that's been a little bit orphaned. And, you know, um, one of the ironies is that it affects everybody, and so it affects nobody. You can't wear wear a, a pink ribbon for having palliative problems, <laughs> you know? It's not specific enough. I have to have, you know, whatever, John Wilson syndrome. I mean, there are many, many things that are really, you know, moving, but when, you're, when everything is affecting you and when, and when you're sort of generally frail, there aren't any champions. And so um, it's an area that has suffered from a lack of research funding 
and from uh, inattention um, in healthcare for various reasons. We, we have a question to your left. Yes. This week's uh, Time magazine had this very scathing article on the cost for medical attention. Um, and also, there have been many articles about uh, insurance companies dropping uh, long-term care as the person get, became older and older. Mm -hmm. just seems like a no-win uh, game, so to speak. You get older, you plan for long-term care, and then the, the prices get so high that the people have begun to drop it. What can be done, if anything? Yeah, uh, um, it's not an area that as a researcher I have special expertise in, but um, I, I, long-term care is one of the most um, important venues for these kinds of issues. I, um, it's, it's not exactly an answer to your question, but in long-term care environments, annual mortality rates in average facilities are around 25%. And about 60% of the residents have dementia. And so, um, and so there are certainly troubling issues when one needs long-term care because, of course, in seeking something like that out, you have to be pretty frail in the first place. And then the relevance of these issues is very high. But that's part of the missing puzzle. If you, it's one of the missing puzzle pieces to the puzzle of improving this care because it is an environment in which so many of us need this sort of support. I have a question in the middle. Hi, I'm Lori Sigita from the Heart Touch Project here in Santa mm. Monica. Hi. And we've been providing volunteers into mm -hmm. our community to provide compassionate touch oh, at UCLA. Mm -hmm. and, but the, again, I want to speak to ask you about the funding issue mm -hmm. because we actually get the funding to train mm -hmm. certified massage therapists, mm -hmm. nurses, mm -hmm. practitioners yeah. to provide their clients mm -hmm. with presence and mm -hmm. uh, therapeutic touch yeah. um, on site. But there is no funding. These, these individuals come, they get trained by us, right. and we actually deploy them out into the, the medical field in right. the hospitals and the hospices. Mm -hmm. And we are beginning to train hospice um, personnel mm -hmm. to learn the um, methodology. Mm -hmm. But the funding is absolutely not there, and we struggle. We've been right. in business since 1995 doing mm -hmm. this, but it's getting tighter and tighter. Yeah. What Can you speak to that? Um, so I think that we are going to witness tremendous changes in the way that healthcare is funded in general. And um, one of the problems with palliative care, um, maybe one of its opportunities, is that it came along too late to benefit, if you will, from the um, specialty-oriented fee-for-service um, oriented healthcare uh, or approach to payment that's predominant in Medicare. And so it suffered from an orphan status, much uh, like what you're talking about with um, the role of massage and, and um, therapeutic touch. But um, at the same time, I think some of the healthcare reform efforts underway, and I'll just give you an example of one of them, the Accountable Care Organization, are, are kind of forcing, maybe somewhat unwillingly or willingly, but clinicians and, and healthcare organizations together in new forms of collaboration. It's likely that what the, the kind of work that you sponsor or the kind of work that I'm involved in, um, although it may never achieve a fee-for-service status, so you might not get paid for, for what you do on a piecework basis, it is more likely in some ways that those kinds of environments will embrace um, these sorts of care. Um, maybe because they're cost savings, but if we're using approaches that, that um, 
that actually assess the experiences people have in healthcare, then they'll tend to also value more humane environments. And I think that will support the kinds of things that you do as well as the kinds of work that, um, that we do medically in providing care for patients nearing the end of life. So that's a, that's a hopeful change. We, we have a question to your yes. left. Mm -hmm. um, no, not a question. I just wanted to say that actually Kaiser um, is now providing palliative care, mm -hmm. at least for ALS patients. Yes. And um, that's pretty huge. It, it? <laughs> it is huge, yeah. Um, and hopefully other people that need it. And um, I know that there has been a, a palliative mm -hmm. care physician at UCLA for mm -hmm. many years. Yes. And I think that, unfortunately, the public just has to become educated and ask for it. And, sure. and that's how it's going to happen. Uh, that's exactly right. So in coming here, you're actually way ahead of the general public in the sense that one of the things that um, – public polling on this issue of palliative care has shown is that most people don't know what it is. So it, it's hard to ask about something that you're completely unaware of. Um, and so one of the major obstacles to improving this kind of care is just making people aware of an alternative and, and helping them understand what it is. So, um, so that's, a, that's a really important public policy step forward. I have a question to the speakers, right? <coughs> I'm aware of the fact that um, uh, hospice programs are different in different countries. I know originally, because I had studied with uh, Cecily Saunders, oh. who founded the first hospice oh, in England at St. Christopher's. Yes. And um, I know it's a whole different approach from this country. Mm -hmm. How does palliative care, uh, how is it taken care of, how is it approached in other countries? Sure. So um, it's marvelous that you studied with Cecily Saunders. And I would just mention to people who don't know who she is um, – she is one of the foundational originators of uh, this sort of focus on care, if I could speak about it broadly, leading both to what we think of as hospice, but also really ultimately to palliative care. She was knighted at, at one point. She's deceased now. But really interestingly, from the standpoint of her career and helping you to understand maybe a little bit more about this subject, she started life um, with an aspiration to healthcare professions in an era when, um, you know, women were exemplified in advertisements standing near stoves, right, shiny stoves. And, and so um, and when she undertook her career, she actually, despite her aspirations, I think she sort of wound up as a social worker. And that's not saying anything bad about a social worker, but that's where she was put. And then, interestingly, she decided she'd do something else. Well, um, she wound up being a nurse. And then um, she wound up being a doctor. So she kind of ran the gamut over time, right? Um, and interestingly, because of her experiences as a social worker, as a nurse, and then as a physician, she was able to see the comprehensive perspective on the illness experience that everybody else had missed. So although it might seem denigrating that she had to take such a long path, actually that variety of experiences exemplifies both the team-based approach that we emphasize in providing the kind of care, and it gave her a conceptual model of what was important to patients and families that everybody else had missed. And so when we talk about Cicely Saunders, we invoke something called the total pain model, which looks at pain as an experience of physical distress, social distress, emotionally dis emotional distress, and existential or spiritual distress. So it's, it's, fun it's amazing, actually, that, that you had that experience with her. And, um, and in other countries, um, it's very interesting. It, it's quite different. So I spent, I've spent some time doing this in Japan. 
and I've spent some time doing it in Australia. And, um, and both situations are very different. Um, interestingly, in Australia, in 2007 and 2008, I, just to give you one anecdote about it. Um, so Australians know what palliative care is. And when I was there, I was talking to one of my colleagues in Australia. I said, you know, what do you do when you have a family that, um, in, the, in which the individual is failing due to dementia and they come, uh, they're having difficulties feeding and they're talking about a feeding tube. And he looked at me like I'd asked him how the Australian mission to Neptune was going. <laughs> you know? He, um, he had a really puzzled expression on his face and he said, what do you mean? He said, we would never have someone in that situation considering a feeding tube. So, you know, um, I think one thing that that taught me, um, first of all, in Australia, people knew what palliative care was. But secondly, they had a culture that supported it, and they still do. Um, a, a culture in which people feel that the healthcare system actually is looking out for all of them, and also in which they feel that, um, uh, you know, there's a sort of fullness and, and roundness to life that sometimes means respecting um, its frailty and, and, and not violating it in some of the ways that we more commonly do. So um, it's very interesting. I think culturally it differs and differs in the way that healthcare is organized. Um, ultimately, it's trying to do the same thing, though. Um, yes, please. Yes. The way Cecily Solander got to the ultimate piece of uh -huh. becoming a physician yes. was not uh, exactly the way you're okay. describing it, okay. since I knew her and spent yes, a lot of time please, with her. Um, she was a social worker. You're quite mm -hmm. correct in that. And uh, she went to the medical people mm -hmm. and tried to introduce the whole concept of hospice, mm -hmm. which was very different in this country, yes. uh, at St. Christopher's. Mm -hmm. And uh, she was rejected. Mm -hmm. And they said, what would a social worker know possibly about this right. very important medical field? She then went to medical school, mm -hmm. became a physician. Right. And then she went back to them again and said, now I'm prepared. Okay. <laughs> right. So that's, see, that's, that's who she was. Yes. And the whole concept was different. And that's mm -hmm. why I'm interested in knowing that even mm -hmm. as St. Christopher's ran its program, it was so different than this country. When you right. go in this country to a hospice program, in some sense, they think of 90 days. Yes, sure. 90 days. Mm -hmm. Not so in St. Christopher's. Mm -hmm. The original hospice concept was you moved in with your own furniture. Mm hmm. You spend time there. Yes. If you plateaued, you'd go home. Hmm. And you come back again. Yeah. So it was a whole different approach. That's mm -hmm. why I asked you, how do other countries deal with these issues? Right. Um, so my only experience is directly in the care environment in Australia and Japan. But they're very different. Um, my experience in Japan was um, very, very opposite in that um, it was very hospital-based and very separate from the rest of the healthcare system. I'll never forget um, going down to the medical wards where this wonderful, beautiful hospice existed, and in the medical wards, having a very nearly tearful medical resident drag me to the bed of a Japanese man with pancreatic cancer who'd been sitting in the hospital for something like six weeks and hadn't received any pain man management because they didn't know what to do. So um, even though they were side by side, they were completely separate. And, and in Australia, that was different, right? Australians um, uh, have a much different view of it. Um, so uh, it's a really interesting question. I don't think it's one that we understand very well, but I have seen the differences. Yeah.
Yes. Uh, and so is there any sense that we start training kids in medical school before they graduate mm. and to expose them to these uh, novel ideas? Sure. Um, I do think we need more exposure to it. Um, you know, we, uh, we do uh, train students, for example, at UCLA, although um, their involvement in our service is on an elective basis. So I think that they that it is embedded in their curriculum in some ways, um, but it's, it's sort of more of an hors d'oeuvre than it is um, a central feature. So, um, you know, there's a need for better training throughout, and it's very hard to balance all the kinds of training that we want our clinicians to have, to the people who are going to be responsible caring for us. Um, there's no way that we're going to solve this problem, if you will, from a social perspective, without making sure that it's part of everybody's training who cares for us, and not just physicians, but the nurses who spend most of their time with us at the bedside when we're, when we're experiencing the, the really difficult moments of health care, the social workers who are part of counseling us and helping to find better solutions for, for the problems we face, um, our chaplains, our psychologists. There, this has to be part of health care training in a very broad and general way. But um, uh, the workforce shortages are immense. A few years ago, I gave a talk um, over at the VA. And I remember before the talk, this was four or five years ago. So the number has changed, but not by very much. Um, I gave a talk, and before the talk, I looked up the number of people who had sought out special training or certification in palliative medicine in the state of California. And I realized we had six of those physicians at the VA over there. And guess how many there were in the state? 300. So this was about five years ago. So, um, yeah, things have changed. But, you know, if you want to go and get a colonoscopy, I guarantee you, you'll find 20 people who give it to you here in Santa Monica in five minutes, <laughs> right? Uh, if you want to go find somebody who can do this, you're going to have to look for it. And I know that it's improving, and we do have local programs in some of our other facilities, but it's not as easy, and um, it's much, much more difficult. A question in the middle? A uh, comment and a question. Uh, the comment is actually Kaiser has many mul mm -hmm. uh, palliative care programs, sure. not just for ALS. But yes. uh, my question is really mm -hmm. around measurement. Mm -hmm. How are you measuring success of a program? Mm -hmm. So we have many different kinds of palliative care programs, inpatient programs, outpatient mm -hmm. programs, yep. home-based programs. How do we know which ones may be the most successful? It's a great yeah. question. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I've talked with Dan Johnson a little bit about this at Kaiser. But I, I think, uh, and Dan is the National Director of Hospice and Palliative Care for Kaiser. Um, you know, in, in the Department of Veterans Affairs, we measure it by holding the hospital responsible. So we hold the health system. It's not actually just the hospital. It's actually the clinics, the hospital, the long-term care facilities, the outpatient care. But it's, it's units of, of it, it's integrated units of care that we hold responsible at the unit level, Right. Um, really what people would think of now as the accountable care organization. In the VA, we already sort of replicated in our structure of integrated payment and delivery. And, and so um, for a problem that is associated with so many problems related to discontinuity. So as an example, there's a study. Um, the author, one of the authors is Virginia Tilden. It was done in Oregon back in the early 90s. It's in, uh, it's in a nursing journal. But it's a really interesting survey of people in Oregon. And it showed that in the last month of life, 
um, a large percentage of people, and I don't remember the exact number, so I'm not, gonna, not going to try to quote it, but it's quite, a, it's quite a striking number, maybe it was a third or something, of people were transferred between two or three settings in the last few weeks of life. So it's very common to go bouncing back and forth. There was a study in JAMA uh, the first week of February by a person named Joan Tino, who's working very closely with us here at RAND on some studies that we're doing now. And Joan's study showed that these transitions have increased. I think the average decedent in her study had three transitions in the last part of life. So um, the transitions are really common. It's not enough in a pr- for a problem where much of the much of it is is fostered by the ping pong ball experience that we have when we're really ill. It's not enough in a problem like that to incentivize one level. You actually have to incentivize across the network of of uh, sites and providers and care experiences that are that are the aggregate cause and effect. So in the VA, for example, every one of those units I'm talking about um, is responsible for the family's experience of care when the veteran has died. And, and so experience of care is a very important way to get at that. Medicare is now developing, as I mentioned, one of these types of surveys for hospice, but I think it, it needs to be deployed more widely. The other thing that we found, and I, I find this through my experience um, helping to lead some of the programs in VA um, and try to develop standards for them, but we find when we go to teams and we say, your families didn't have the kind of experience of care they needed, then they ask us, because we're the ones trying to hold them responsible, they ask us, well, what do you, want, what do you think we should do? So, f- so inevitably, healthcare teams want process information. If, the, if families noted that the pain experience of their loved one was bad, then the teams want to know, what did we do that could have been better? And so process and outcomes, if that's a, I don't know if that's um, kind of what you're thinking, process and outcomes data are both needed, and we're working on both of those. We have tools for both of those. And they need to be instituted at the integrated level that reflects the patient's uh, needs and experience. And that usually means something larger than a hospital, right? Um, an accountable care organization, if you will. Um, but in, in the VA and probably in Kaiser, um, these more integrated units. So is, is that helpful? Okay, sure. We, we have a question in the center. Uh, I sit on the bioethics committee at Cedars-Sinai as the lay individual. Uh, we at Cedars are actually uh, training our interns and medical students. And we also have care for the families. We have bioethics mm-hmm. sessions with them, which we bring to the attention of the families, and they can request it when there are problems. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I think as a lay individual, forget about professional, is we do need more conversation in every aspect of our lives. Mm-hmm. We are a very phobic country, mm-hmm. and most of the countries outside of our country mm-hmm. are more inured to death and discussion of death than we are. Uh, I think that it is a money issue, but it is not entirely a money issue. And I think that we should keep that as part of the conversation, but not the total. And that should not put us off as to what we need to do and to continue needing to do. And it should be uh, the uh, direction of those who do know how to disseminate Mm -hmm information that is spoken in a lay individual's terms and so they're not all in Mm -hmm. medical terms that they don't know what is being thrown Mm -hmm. at them 
and or all of us because I put myself in the us category rather than them category. And um, I'd like to know if I could just close this and say, what is it that RAND can do for the population at large? So Thank you. I, I think one of, the, one of the things we're doing, so um, it was very interesting. Um, I had the privilege of meeting with Earl Blumenauer, who is the author of the legislation that, that was kicked out of the Accountable Care Act that dealt with routine advanced care planning um, that, was, that was then pilloried as a death panel legislation, right? But when I met with him, I remember one of the things um, that was really striking about that conversation is in, in kind of, you know, poisoning the well, if you will, of something that all of us saw as value, regardless of where we sit on the political spectrum. You know, one of the questions is, what are we going to talk about next? And it's really actually hopeful. So um, one of the things that RAND excels at is the science of quality measurement. And I actually think um, one of the paths forward, and, and we offered this in our conversations with Congressman Blumenauer, um, one of the ways forward is the language of quality. Because it doesn't matter where we sit on the political spectrum, all of us intrinsically hold on to the idea of good quality and, and the receipt of good quality care. And so um, I actually think that quality might offer um, a language for a better conversation. Um, and, and so we have developed many tools here at Rand Health um, that help us to measure and standardize critical elements of care. Um, an example is pain management. The, the slide that I showed you of this terrible outcome for this gentleman, um, it shouldn't happen. And we do have the tools to evaluate whether that happens, to report um, whether these things happen to, um, you, you know, when we approach these issues, I, I, I also fully agree with you that cost, um, it's important. We have to acknowledge that it's important from a social perspective, um, but it doesn't have to be the fulcrum for action. I think quality um, is a better basis for um, for our social consensus around the need to address these areas. So, um, I, don't, I, I think that's kind of my answer to your question. There may be other ways forward, but um, I think quality is one that is terribly underused. In, and again, um, I think because of the political context of the ACA and maybe how some of this has happened, um, there aren't really any measures for this. And all the work that CMS is doing right now to bring forward standards for um, our new forms of healthcare delivery, um, we're still missing this piece. And so um, I think some of those pieces might get built. I think people are aware that they're missing. But um, I, uh, I think that that is still an unmet need. And part of it is that we need, um, we need to do the work in some of the incipient care models that are developing. So I don't know if many of you are aware, but the um, accountable care organizations are a new form of care delivery that are authorized under the Accountable Care Act. And actually, Southern California has quite a, quite a few of them. But, um, you know, could we have a conversation with anyone, any of them, about instituting quality measurement like this and understanding um, its effects in the population? I'm actually convinced that much as we had outcries about not having access to, say, 
um, bone marrow transplants and breast cancer back in, um, you know, 20 years ago if, or 20 or 30 years ago, if you remember that, that kind of legal activity in the state of California and elsewhere, that we're going to have similar outcries uh, um, from some of the healthcare reform issues that are going to save costs in our society. Um, we're going to have patients step forward and say, I didn't get dialysis when I wanted it or needed it. And the irony is that by ignoring these parts of quality, we're ignoring the need to give people um, an informed conversation. And that means that we're going to face a backlash because we still, be, because these standards aren't actually meant to push us into end-of-life care. They're meant to inform us. They're meant to help us make better choices. By ignoring these areas, we actually place ourselves in greater jeopardy. So I'm concerned that, that if we continue to ignore the language of quality, not only are we jeopardizing our ability to move forward in these areas, we're actually jeopardizing the efforts we're making now to reform the system that we're working in. So um, I, I really think quality is, an, is a necessary part of that future. We have time for one last audience question to the right. Mm -hmm. okay. well, I, I was also trained in general internal medicine mm -hmm. at the okay. beginning. Um, and I, I was concerned about the issue of where pain control fits into all of this. Sure. Mm -hmm. You know, I can tell you among medical colleagues that there hasn't been a time when pain control was under a darker cloud mm -hmm. than the past six months in California. Mm -hmm. I mean, just looking at the headlines in the Los Angeles Times sure. about drug overdoses, mm -hmm. about irresponsible prescribing, yeah. about DEA mm -hmm. tightening down mm -hmm. to the point where people can't, Prescribe yes. Uh, in, with any, why would any physician think to ever venture into this area, yeah. which is uh, already under a terrifically black cloud? Right. So I'm curious what what your experiences are, and, and yeah. is my impression correct or incorrect? I, I think the uh, inattention. Um, I will say our journalism uh, community isn't particularly um, hasn't been. I haven't seen particular writing or thinking about these other sides of that coin that you're talking about. I understand why we as a society are so concerned about prescription drug abuse. Um, and actually, um, I um, sat on the FDA committee that recently um, uh, advised the FDA, FDA with respect to hydrocodone prescribing. Um, what was really telling for me in that conversation in Washington was that as we were thinking about hydrocodone, and I think it's a critical public health issue. I don't think anything that I've seen that was written about this was wrong in and of itself. It was very important to bring attention to it. And um, the policy solutions there are also really complex. But what impresses me is that as we talk about substance abuse related to hydrocodone, and, and the um, Controlled Substances Act actually invokes the issue of the public health impacts of policy choices. One of the public health impacts that was missing from that conversation in Washington was any thought about um, pain itself. In other words, we, we saw reams of data and, and justifiable data about the, about the addictive risks of hydrocodone compared to other drugs, about um, exactly how hydrocodone products are being used in the context of abuse. But we didn't see any information about hydroco how hydrocodone products are really used to relieve pain. And, and so um, it is true that I think we have less attention, and that pendulum has swung back and forth. So I actually think, um, again, quality does have an answer here, too. Um, we don't have standards for pain management. Um, 
you know, uh, there are some that, okay, maybe they're a little abstruse um, even for physicians to think about. But I'll give you an example of one, and then I'll, I'll let Jeffrey uh, end, end our session here. But, uh, you know, I've been struck in much of the work we've done on quality of care. We just did a national study looking at the quality of supportive patients and pa- in so quality of supportive care for patients with metastatic cancer. And one of the things we found in that study that's been true of a number of smaller studies that were done over the last 10 years is something that's hard to believe. And I wouldn't believe it myself, except that it, it's shown up in like three or four or five really studies of, of notable scope. And that is that um, clinicians, even in the hospitalized setting, don't always provide bowel prophylaxis to patients getting daily opioids. It's such a basic element of practice, right? Constipation is, a, is an experience. I hear my patients complaining about it all the time. And yet, unless everybody in the last 10 years has done something wrong in measuring that, it seems like we still have the same problem. And it's just an example of where quality, when unattended to, just doesn't happen. And yet, our, uh, if we only attended to that, we'd probably make as much progress as we would through flooding the world with drugs that don't seem to make it to the right people. And so there's a tension in this area, and I don't want to propose to know the answer because, or, or propose to you that I know the answer because I think it's enormously complex. But when I do look at it, I see a lack of attention to some of these areas that do relate to pain management. And I see our potential to make progress in areas that are astonishingly neglected. And so um, I think um, that is really, in a way, how I feel about this entire subject. So maybe an appropriate place to end, because I think we have great promise. We have tools that we've never had before. You can see from the evidence that we have that we have stronger evidence than we've had before that we, have, that we can make this different. But to do so, we need to have a broader social consensus. We need to have support for the kinds of research and intervention that we need to do, even locally, to make a difference. And um, we need advocacy. Um, we need public awareness. So there are a lot of needs we have, and I thank you for listening. I'll be happy to answer your questions. After Jeffrey. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.